Dad, you used up all the ice. It's a true story. Dad, you, you spilled water on my homework. Dad, you, you, you threw out my drink, my snack, my candy. You threw out my hamster. All right, okay. Well, let's everybody calm down. We never even owned a hamster. <sighs> accusations. I'm not, I'm not a fan of accusations. I don't mind making an accusation here or there. <laughs> it can be kind of fun watching people sweat. That's why those gotcha moments and all those crime mystery movies are just so good. When Columbo says in that gravelly voice, it's no use, sir. We know you killed your wife. <laughs> the expression that comes on the murderer's face, it's, it's priceless. It's priceless. I love it. But you know, when the tip of the spear is pointed my way, that's a different story. That's an upsetting thing, especially when I feel like the accusations are either completely ridiculous or just plain wrong. How dare you point the finger at me? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know how foolish you are being in making this accusation? I don't think you do. Brandon introduced us to an issue that arose with one of the men that the early church had selected to care for widows who were being neglected. Stephen, one of those seven guys who was called to help oversee the distribution of food for those in need so that the elders, so that the pastors might get on with the business of teaching God's word and praying for the people. In some ways, Stephen was more of an ordinary guy doing not-so-extraordinary things. But Luke tells us in Acts 6, 5, that he was, he was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And he gave evidence of that in verse 8, where he told us that Stephen was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Apparently, as he was carrying out those those important tasks of caring for the needs of, of people. God began to work powerfully through him. And as you can imagine, that caused quite a stir. And all kinds of cross-faced creatures began crawling out of the woodwork to bark and snap at him. And then when they, when they realized that they were no match for his, the words that were coming from his mouth, verse 11 says that they secretly instigated men and said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Not long after that, they produced witnesses who were making uh, charges, and they were saying things like, this man never ceases to speak words against, against this holy place, meaning the temple, and, and the law, for we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, if this were me, I'm not exactly sure what I would have done. I don't like accusations. Sometimes even the smallest accusations really get under my skin. But these were on a totally different level. These were big accusations. How, how do you feel? How do you feel when you see people getting accused, good people being accused? Maybe they're, they're even arrested. Maybe they're mistreated for ridiculous things or things that you know that they're actually innocent of. 
How, how was Stephen going to react? What was he going to do? What was he going to say? And so there he stands before the council, the highest Jewish court in the land. The high priest is there. He's heard the accusations against Stephen. You know, this was the same group that put in motion Jesus' march to the cross. In fact, the accusations being made, some of, there's some of the same accusations that Jesus was accused of. And here's, here is Stephen, a man who knew exactly what they did to Jesus, facing the prospect of going down that same path that Jesus was made to walk, a path that would likely lead to a distinctly final and perhaps brutal end. What would you do if you were in Stephen's shoes? Would you, would you just say, that's it, enough is enough, this, this Christian thing isn't working for me anymore? Maybe you'd begin yelling, maybe you'd begin fighting, maybe you would devote yourself to doing all that you can to take the heat off, to clear your name, prove to everyone around that you are innocent. Would you do that? What we have here in our passage today, in Acts chapter 7, what we have here in this man named Stephen is an example of what it looks like for someone who was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit to respond to false accusations. And what we see, I think, is quite different from, we might, from what we might see from someone who was quite full of himself. So we're going to walk through Acts chapter 7. 53 verses here. We're going to walk through all of them this morning because it's just that good. And we are going to try to take in what the Spirit led Stephen to say. Look at verse 1 here. It says, the high priest said, are these things so? Okay, here it is. Stephen's chance to speak. It says, Stephen said, brothers, and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Okay, let's pause right there. Right, right from the very start, it's plain to see Stephen's speech is not so much about vindicating himself, but about leading his listeners to understand what God is doing. He doesn't begin with, I, 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 I this, I that, I, I didn't do that, I didn't do this, I, I, I believe this. No, 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 no. He begins with the God of glory. That's significant. It's interesting, isn't it, how very often all we can think about is our plans and our perspectives and whether or not we are vindicated when what really matters is what God is doing and God's perspective in his honor. Isn't that interesting? How would our responses to people's gripes and complaints and accusations change if what we really cared about, first and foremost, was God's kingdom rather than the one that we've been working so hard to build up for ourselves? Notice how many times Stephen mentions God working here. He says, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, 
God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Notice, it's God, 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 God. That's what his speech is about. This is your defense, Stephen? What did God do? Well, God appeared to this man named Abraham. God told him, leave your homeland, leave your family. He moved to Haran. From Haran, God says, okay, now you're going to move again. Then God promises to give him land, but that's not going to happen in Abraham's lifetime. Verse 6, God reveals that even Abraham's descendants, they're going to be sojourners until such time where the people of the land enslave them. Does Stephen seemed to believe in the Israelite God? Absolutely. Does he have regard for their their common Jewish heritage? You better believe it, even though he was one of these Hellenists. He's one of these gods, these these Greek speakers. These remember we said the Pharisees thought them to be second-class Israelites, even though he's all that. He's true blue or or, or red or, or green or yellow or whatever the color was. Maybe these charges against Stephen aren't all that they're hyped up to be. Something else to notice here. They'd accused him of speaking against their holy place, right? The temple. As if the temple was the only place where God resided. This is the one, the sacred space. It's this place that matters. But as Stephen begins to lay out his account of their history... He not so subtly points out that God's presence is in no way limited to one place. No. God's in Mesopotamia. Then he's in Haran. He's there with Abraham as as he traveled. He's there with, with his descendants even as they're held captive in a foreign land. Look at verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought for a sum, bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. So Jacob, where Stephen left off at the end of verse 8 had 12 sons, and they were known as the 12 patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. And these were pillar-like figures 
in the minds of Stephen's listeners. Joseph, of course, they knew, was someone who God would use to save his people, save his people from starvation, along with so many other people when there was this time of terrible famine in that part of the world. You know, in a way, Joseph is a lot like Jesus, isn't he? Stephen doesn't mention anything outright about that, but he certainly doesn't shy away from highlighting some of the parallels either. Jesus came to deliver people from from a spiritual death, just like Joseph was used by God to deliver people from a physical starvation and death. Not only that, but, but Joseph was rejected, wasn't he? In a horrible way. He was betrayed, delivered over to foreigners because his brothers were filled with jealousy. In the same way, Jesus was rejected. Jesus was betrayed. He was handed over to foreigners, to the Romans, because of the envy of the Jewish religious leaders. Everyone who was listening to Stephen knew that Joseph had been done wrong. He had been done wrong by his brothers. They wouldn't deny that clearly Joseph was God's man and that God would work even in spite of his brother's cruel actions. They were not unfamiliar with that, that, that famous phrase of Joseph's in Genesis 50, 20. You meant evil against me. God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so were it not for God powerfully working through the one that the 11 other patriarchs had rejected, none of those who were listening to Stephen right then and there would likely even be there. Once again, even though he was a Hellenist, a a Greek speaker, by his own mouth, Stephen seems to have the utmost respect for and alignment with Israelite history. But what these listeners were now getting was a a, a whiff of the sordid past of their ancestors. Their ancestors weren't always on board with God's plans. In the case of of Joseph, they're actually guilty of of fighting against God's plans. Look at verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased, multiplied in the land, in in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. He was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him, brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. They had labeled Stephen a Moses hater. (laughs) We've heard him speak blasphemous words about Moses and, and God, they said in verse 11. Well, how can that be the case? They're hearing him right then and there talk so highly of God's plans and how Moses was this, this special part of it. How could they say, how could he say that Moses was beautiful in God's sight? Verse 23. 
When he was 40 years old, that's, that's Moses, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who wronged his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became father of two sons. If you're familiar with the, the life of Moses, you know that here was a man who was specially called by God to deliver his people out of slavery. In that way, just like, just like Joseph, Moses is very much a Christ-like figure who lived long before Jesus was even born. He's not without his faults. He's not without his weaknesses. No, but no self-respecting Jew would argue that, that he's a heroic figure whom God used in powerful ways. He's undeniably part of God's plan. We got it. We get it. It's good. Yet Stephen here brings the attention of the council to this place where Moses was not recognized by his Hebrew ancestors as God's man. Stephen said that Moses, he, he supposed his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they didn't understand. On the contrary, they turned on him, didn't they? And this man rises up and says, who made you ruler and judge over us? In essence, they threatened to turn him over to the Egyptians. We'll turn you in, buddy. And he flees and becomes an exile. Was, was Moses God's man and, 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 and Israel's deliverer, was he wronged? He most certainly was. In the moment Stephen was describing, were the people on board with or were they fighting against God's plans? Most definitely resisting them. If there was any doubt in Stephen's, in, in anyone's mind, Stephen clears it up by recounting the rest of what took place beginning in verse 30. He says, now when four years had passed, an angel appeared to him, that is Moses, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning. I've come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This is God's man. This is where Stephen begins to turn up the heat as he makes his point to his whole speech all the more explicit. Look at verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent 
as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. And he received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. And and for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away, gave them over to worship the hosts of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech. And the star of your God, Rephon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Only a real dummy would fail to see the parallels that Stephen is drawing here. I hope none of you are dummies. Uh, As he's outlined Israelite history, clearly showing how God mightily worked to save his people Not just once, but over and over and over again. And at the same time, his people had mistook God's means for what they really were and ended up kicking against their own salvation. It's amazing. But, you know, here at the foot of Mount Sinai, this event that that Stephen's now describing, their crime is worse than ever, isn't it? Because there was no misunderstanding here anymore. There's no simple, this is no simple mistake or dim-witted failure to recognize how God was working. No, this was deliberate rejection of God himself. And so rather than embrace this, this unique relationship that God is establishing with them as Moses was up on the mountain receiving God's law, they, they deliver this massive slap in the face by crafting their own God and then congratulating themselves. And for that, God turned away and he declares judgment on them. Do you think judgment, God's judgment, was something that these religious leaders who are listening to Stephen was something that they wanted to come on themselves? I, I, I don't think so. I don't think anyone today who knows the first thing about God and what he's capable of would wish that upon themselves. But man, isn't it so possible to become so self-absorbed, to become so caught up in our own agendas, so bitter and angry at the the one or, or the thing that would stand in our way, accuse us, so easy to lose sight of the possibility that God's judgment might be right where we are headed. So easy. You know, people these days, 
past few years at least, have been talking about being on the wrong side of history. <laughs> I don't know if these council members who were listening to Stephen realized it or not, but they, just like their fathers, had fallen onto the wrong side of God. It's what happens when your plans take center stage over his plans. It's what happens when your agenda is so precious to you that you're unable to recognize and submit yourself to his agenda. There they were. They were listening to the accusations of Stephen being on the wrong side, weren't they? Stephen's on the wrong side. You better do something, counsel. We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses, against God. That's strange because it seems like everything coming out of his mouth communicates the utmost respect for Moses and God. Well, he won't stop speaking against this, this holy place, this temple, and, and its customs. Well, maybe you're getting a little too carried away with your idolization of this place. You know it's not God. The building's not God. In fact, it's never even been in our imagination that it could possibly be an adequate place to, to contain God. Stephen goes on, verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joseph when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Solomon was the one who built the temple. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne. And the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place, what is this, this is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all things? But God initially comes down and he dwells with his people in a tent. It symbolizes this awesome reality that God would stoop so low as to tabernacle to, 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 to come camp out with them. He wasn't committed to one particular place. How could he be? He's God. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And just as he tented it with his people ages ago, Stephen would have understood that he does the same thing now as his Holy Spirit dwells in the hearts of each and every believer. He's moving. He's with them everywhere they go. Speak against the temple? Clearly these people had embraced a warped understanding of what the temple even was. Are there things in our lives that we have wrongly elevated to the status that God alone deserves? Are there things that we get so angry about when we feel that they, they've been disrespected, or they've been dis, displaced, or disregarded. And we fail to see that our righteous anger has actually been misplaced. Are there times when we're, we're so consumed with 
pointing out the faults of everyone else, all those people who are failing at so many different things that we fail to see our own lack of devotion or reverence or failure to lay down all that we are and all that we have and all that we dream of and desire as an act of loving worship to the one who rightfully deserves it. It's such an odd thing to me. I don't get hot and bothered about a, a temple made of, of stone and gold trim. I don't, I don't get hot and bothered about that. But I sure do get upset when someone disrespects this temple. <laughs> oh, I get hot and bothered. When someone cuts me off mid-sentence, I hate that. They disagree with my ideas. They don't obey my orders. They encroach on my territory, put their trash cans in front of my house, or accuse me wrongly. That's when my shields go up, my blood is boiling, and my tongue turns pitchfork. What's happening? I'm finding myself on the wrong side. Not concerned about God's honor. (laughs) I'm all about my own. Is that what being full of the Holy Spirit looks like? No, it's not. Stephen could have gone off the rails defending his honor. He could have gone on and on about his character, his history, how insulted he was, that anyone would even question his faithfulness as an Israelite. His defense could have been all about himself, but what we see here in Acts 7 is that what he really cares about is God's story. This wasn't about self-interest. This wasn't about self-preservation, but a God-given mission and eternal priorities. And what he so masterfully lays out in his speech is to call everyone listening to see it straight and get back in line with God's program. And he doesn't give them a spoonful of sugar to let it go down easy, does it? He doesn't embrace them with a warm hug. No, he, these people needed to hear the truth. They needed to hear the truth, even though it may very well cost Stephen everything. He just speaks the truth. And he speaks for God. And he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the law as delivered, you who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Perhaps you remember how after being arrested and ordered never to speak again the name of Jesus, Peter, John, and all those Christians who were with them afterwards, they prayed that God would give them even more boldness. God answered that prayer, didn't he? And of course, someone might say, well, of course they prayed that. They were superstar, superhero Christians. We're not the same as those guys. 
we're the ordinary Christians. We're the, we're the ones who, who are, are just doing the best to serve the little we can. We're setting up tables. We're, we're serving food. We're, we're the everyday believers. We're just doing our best to, to, to represent Jesus just a little, little bit at work or at school. We're the ones who are just trying to keep up with our quiet times and make a resolution every year. And we just fail every single year. And, and, and we're trying really hard not to let those four-letter words slip out when we hammer our thumbs. We're the, we're the ordinary people. We're not like that. But here's a guy who's a bit more ordinary. He didn't have the prestigious title surrounded in lights that said, Apostle. He was helping serve food to, to widows in need. And yet, he was a man doing lowly service kind of work. Described as being full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. He wasn't full of himself, was he? His life wasn't about seeking and defending his own agenda. No, his life was about God's agenda. And that is why even as he stood there before the highest Jewish court in the land, falsely accused, the words that come out of his mouth were not for his benefit, were they? but that the glorious plan of God might shine bright against the backdrop of dark and twisted human hearts. How does a man or woman full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit respond when falsely accused? Well, rather than give way to fear, give way to anger. They courageously speak truth that displays God's glory and leads others to repent and trust him. Their life isn't lived trying to convince people to get on their side, but on God's side. They live for, for his honor for his glory and his plans before and above their own. My friends, may, may our prayer be that, that we might be a little bit more like this, this guy, Stephen. May we be full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, so that even when accusations are falsely laid out against us, our heart's desire might be to lead others to see God's glory and get in line with his plans rather than our own. Amen? Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how the Holy Spirit, your spirit, worked through this man, Stephen. And many of us have read ahead. Many of us know the rest of the story. What happens to this man? His, the glorious end he met with, Lord. And to read these words in light of what was about to happen, Lord, it is, it is awe-inspiring. This is a picture of a person who is controlled by your spirit. And Lord, we, we so desire to be controlled by your spirit.
And I confess, and we together confess, Lord, that so very often, especially when our pride is wounded, when accusations come our way, when the tip of the spear is pointed in our direction, Lord, we are so often not controlled by your spirit. But take offense. Our blood boils. We fly off the handle. And we do not represent you well. Lord, work powerfully within us to bring about the change that is needed, to build the character that we need, the humility and the trust in you that we might respond more like Stephen, that we might be all about your story, your glory, your plan, and turning people to you. We love you, we thank you, and pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus, amen.